we are continuing our series on the final word, and we started this a few weeks back in, uh, at the beginning of June, and we are looking at the first five chapters of Revelation in particular. This is a letter, the letter that Jesus inspired through the power of the Holy Spirit, inspired the Apostle John to write to a church that was facing intense persecution and opposition. Not only were they facing opposition from the Romans, but they were also facing opposition from within, from their own fellow Jews that they thought were behind them and with them. And as the persecution and the opposition increased, they started to see people desert. They started to see people change sides. They started to see people walk away from the mission that God had originally called them to. And so particularly we're looking at the first five books in Revelation, the first five chapters, and the last few weeks we've been focusing on the letters, the seven letters to the church in Asia Minor. And each week we've seen something new or unique, something similar about these churches in Asia Minor. Some of the letters are used to rebuke and chastise, and some are used to commend. Well, this morning we're looking at Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 through 13. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 through 13, and in that passage, we're going to find a letter to the church of Philadelphia. And we're not talking cheese, steaks, and eagles, but another Philadelphia uh, in Asia Minor. In fact, Asia, uh, the church of Philadelphia in Asia Minor was one of the churches to the furthest east of all the other churches in Asia Minor. It was known as an open-door city or a gateway city that would lead for the Greeks to the Hellenization of the rest of the barbaric world to the east. And so Philadelphia as a city had a strategic place for the Greek culture and for the Roman Empire, but little did they know that the small, obscure church in a very strategic city would play a role in a greater plan, not for the empire, or for the kingdom of this world, but for the kingdom of God. The church in Philadelphia was founded by a king who had great affection for his brother, hence the name the city of brotherly love. So let's turn together to Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the grass withers and the flower fades. For the word of our God, no, the word of our God 
that stands forever. Amen. A few years back, a movie was produced called Taken, and Taken was starring Liam Neeson, and Liam Neeson in this story, Taken, it's a story about Liam Neeson, who's a CIA operative, who sends his daughter away for long-distance education to Paris, and while he's on the phone with her, she just arrives to Paris, she's letting her father know that she's arrived, suddenly, she's taken She's taken by hostages. And one of the hostages picks up the phone and talks to Liam Neeson, the father. You can imagine the anxiety that the father was dealing with, the anxiety in his voice, thinking that the worst case scenario is about to happen, that my daughter in a foreign city has been taken and held hostage, and who knows what her future is. But Liam Neeson, being a former CIA operative, delivers this message to those that have taken his daughter hostage. He says, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that will be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. That's good stuff right there. That's really that's good. That's really good. But one of the things, whether you've seen that movie or not, what you can sense in, in those words, what you can even sense if you've seen the movie in his voice, is that this is not a man that is flirting or dealing with the trivial of life. This is not a man who is just sitting back reading his People magazine. This is a man that suddenly has a one singular mission in life, and nothing, nothing will stop him. His singular mission from this day forward to the day he rescues his baby girl is I will do anything it takes to bring her home. There is one singular mission in life. You see, Jesus, there is no man who is on greater mission in life. There is no greater example in the Bible of a man who is on a singular mission from God than Jesus himself. Jesus tells us that I have come to do what? To seek and to save the lost. And we see here Jesus, this man who was on one singular mission in life that no one was going to stop, is now writing to this church that is on mission that you have a unique mission, you have a special mission. He is talking to the church in Philadelphia in such a way as to remind them of your purpose and of your mission and of your focus. He even calls them, and we'll, go, we'll talk about this in a second, he talks about you having the door open that you are a strategic church in a strategic city with a strategic mission, with an open door to go out into the rest of the known world to tell people about this man, Jesus. And he tells them, do not stop, do not sit, do not rest until you have conquered the mission that you have been given. 
And so for a few minutes this morning, I want us to think about what does it mean, like the church in Philadelphia, what does it mean for Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church to be a church of singular focus and mission? What does it mean to be on mission? Because when we hear this idea of a church on mission, I think there's some confusion. You see, in the North American church, our greatest problem is we think of church as a place you go and sing songs and hear a sermon and get a couple water or lemonade or a cookie maybe maybe on the good Sundays and then we go home that's only part of it the church is so much more than that the church is not just a place we go on Sunday morning the church of Jesus Christ is a collective group of people that have been bought with a price that have been rescued by Jesus only to then be sent out into the world to be a part of his great rescue mission That is what it means to be a church. That is what it means to be a part of the mission of God. So what does it mean to be a church on mission? God gives us three things here in Revelation chapter 3 as he is writing to the church of Philadelphia. Three things about what it means to be a church on mission. The first thing I want you to see is in verse 8. I just referenced it. He says, Behold, I have set before you what? An open door. Anytime we see this idea of an open door in the Bible, it is talking about the harvest. It is talking about the mission opportunity. Paul, in fact, when he's writing to the church of Corinth, he's still in Ephesus, and he says, I long to be with you. I long to be there. But God has done what? He's opened a door for me here in Ephesus. And he talks about how I can't come to you right now because there's been a door open for me. And so the church in Philadelphia, he says, the door has been open. And what Jesus wants the church of Philadelphia and ultimately for us to understand is that because of his great work of redemption, the doors of the kingdom of heaven have been flung open. Coleridge Presbyterian Church, there's an open door. It's harvest time. It's time to go and to share the good news that Jesus is alive, that God is on his throne, and that you can be a part of God's redeeming, rescuing, restoring work, even be part of it here at Coral Ridge. When you walk in to Coral Ridge on a Sunday morning, I hope this is the case, but the reason that we put greeters at all of the doors, which might seem like a pedestrian task, the reason we put greeters at all the doors is to symbolically communicate to our community and to all those come in that the doors are not closed, that the doors are not locked, that the doors of this church because of Jesus are wide open. And we want you to come in and we want you to hear about this man by the name of Jesus. I want us to ask at this church, in your life, is it an inviting culture? Are you an inviting person? Are you thinking constantly about who am I bringing to church and who am I sharing with and how, who am I declaring and demonstrating the good news of Jesus Christ to? Is my life an open door to thinking about this great opportunity that we have to share the message of Jesus Christ with a lost and dying world? Does your life reflect this open door? Does our church reflect this open door? Does our ministries reflect this open door? That first and foremost on a Sunday morning, we're not thinking about, I hope the music doesn't go too long, or I hope they don't sing that song, I hope Rob cuts it to 20 minutes, or whatever it might be. Are we thinking first and foremost about, who am I bringing Who am I inviting to walk through the open door with? 
to expose people and to introduce them and, and to invite them into this amazing ministry that Jesus has established. That's how God has always built his church, right? He says, I build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. There's an open door and no one can shut it. Governments can't shut it and culture can't shut it and there's no heresy that can shut it. I am so tired of hearing people say, well, church just isn't the way it used to be because the culture this and the culture that and the church is losing its relevance. No, we so overestimate our ability and ourselves. Jesus is the one who's building his church. Jesus is the one that opens the door and culture and times and new norms and governments and heresy and new teaching and what's on TV and what's in the movies and what doesn't matter. God will build his church in spite of all of that. There is an open door. Is there any better mission? Is there any better mission to be a doorkeeper for the kingdom of God? Jesus says, the door is wide open, church. Let's bring people through it. Not only does Jesus say to be a part of a church that is on mission, that you need to understand that there's an open door in which we're to bring people in. There's a key to mission. And we see the key, literally a key that Jesus talks about in, back in verse 7. Jesus says, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Jesus wants us to understand that the door has been open and it's been unlocked by him. Where do we find the ability to accomplish the mission of God? It is through the key of Jesus Christ. He is the key. He holds the key and he unlocks the door and he opens the door and no one can shut it and no one can lock it. Because I'm sure you sit there and you go, you think about the mission of God and bringing people to church and sharing my faith and inviting people. And you go, I have a hard enough time keeping up with myself in my relationship with God. And once again, greatly overestimating ourselves. You see, all throughout the Bible, God used ordinary, weak, and lowly people to do the most remarkable things for the kingdom of God. Noah is called a drunk, and Moses is called a murderer, and David is called an adulterer. Used to do amazing things for the kingdom of God. In fact, in, in here it says that I know that you have little power. Look at verse 8. I know that you have but little power. Scholars tell us that there was no more than 40 people in the church of Philadelphia. As low as 20, as high as 40 people. So you can imagine their thought, the audacity for Jesus to write us. <laughs> Facing this incredible pressure, we're 20, 40 people max. And we're going to go change the world? We're going to be sent out on mission? We are going to be the ones that are sent on mission to the gateway to the east? We are the open door? He says you're greatly under, overestimating yourselves and greatly, greatly underestimating the power that I hold, that I hold the key. It is my ability and my ability alone. And what does he say to prove this to them of how he will use his power and his strength and his might through a broken and lowly church? He says in verse 9, to prove it to you, this is what will happen. Through this band of 20 to 40 brothers and sisters, this is what I will do. Verse 9, behold, I will make those, this is the opposition, the one of strength, the one of power, the proud, the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie, behold, I will make them come down. We're talking about 20, 40 people. 
I will make them come down before your feet, this lowly church, that they will learn that I have loved you. What Jesus is saying is that I hold the key. It is my ability working through you, the church, that will make the most daunting task, the most impossible mission possible because I am the one that will work through you so that even this, this synagogue of Satan, the opposition, the one that is mighty, the one that is proud, the one that is great in numbers, even they I will bring for them to bow their knee before you so that they know that I have loved you. This should give us all the confidence in the world. This is what has been inspiring, encouraging people for the last 2,000 years to go into the darkest, the most unreached places in the entire world in the face of great opposition knowing that it is Jesus that goes before me and he has the key and he opens the door it means for you personally that that person in your life that friend that family member that coworker that you go they would never come to church they would there's not a chance they would ever come to know Jesus it gives us all the encouragement in the world to continue to share, to continue to love, to continue to pursue. Jesus wants us to understand he holds the key, not you. Means the most unlikely people in our lives have the ability to come to know Jesus. The most unlikely people have the ability to restore their marriages. Means the most unlikely people have have the ability to turn their lives upside down and to start anew, to start afresh. It means the addict has the opportunity and the ability to become sober means the husband and wife have the opportunity and the ability to reconcile. It means the most wicked pagan has the opportunity and the ability to bow his or her knee before the throne of God. Do you believe, do you really believe that Jesus holds the key? Do you really believe that Jesus has the power? that the church isn't irrelevant, that the culture is not going to overtake the church, that we don't have to hide and run and live in fear, that Jesus is alive and well and he empowers his church and he is empowering this church, Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, and saying, I have the key, Coral Ridge. Let's go, let's move, let's work. In our weakness, God goes forward because Jesus has the keys. So what's the problem? What are we afraid of? What is so hard living our life on mission, whether it be corporately or collectively as a body or as a church or even individually in our lives? Well, actually, we don't really struggle with mission. All of us are on mission. It's our mission. No one is greater than the kingdom of Rob than Rob. And nobody is better than thinking about their mission and their preferences and their purposes and their dreams than you. We don't have a problem living on mission. Our whole lives revolve around the mission of you. Our greatest struggle is understanding that our mission is not about us. Our whole struggle is that our lives are called to be lived on mission for God. And But what we do to fill that void, to think life is about me and my mission is about me, is we fill the voids of our lives, right, with busyness and financial success and career success and accolades and whatever you want to call it, we fill that void in our life. And we pursue things and dreams and careers and goals and desires all to try to fill that void of our lives, 
And Satan, from the very beginning of time, has been trying to get us to buy this lie. You hitch your wagon to God, and you will miss out. It was the lie that he gave Eve in the garden. If you live your life on mission for God, you will miss out. There will be something that is missing from your life. And the greatest lie that we can believe as a church, both collectively as a body and individually, is that we live our life, not for the mission of ourselves, but for the mission of God, to seek and to save the lost as part of this incredible mission that God invites us into, and we will miss out. But how does God, and through Jesus, deal with it? He deals with it here in this passage, and that's point number three. He gives us, in the midst of unbelief, an incredible promise. How does that, this promise of God overcome the fear that we have? He says in verse 12, the one who conquers, meaning the one who overcomes this, this unbelief, the one who overcomes and conquers this fear that if I hitch my wagon to God and the mission of God in my life, I will be somehow missing out on something. That if I give my money to the mission of God, I will be missing out on money for myself. If I give my time to the mission of God, I will be missing out on time for myself. If I give my energy to the mission of God, I will be missing out on energy reserved for myself. The one who conquers that unbelief, listen, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God. What is Jesus describing there? He is describing eternal presence where? In the house of God. What did the house of God, the temple, represent? It represented two things. Two things that the Jews longed for and the two things that you longed for. Security and abundance. It was the temple where they would feel secure because they would be in the presence of God. They would feel secure and right and safe. But it was also in the temple of God that we're told where the abundance of all things would flow from. And so what Jesus is saying is the two things you long for, the reason you fear living for the mission of God, I will miss out on security and abundance and fullness. Jesus says it's in the temple of God where it's met and found, that you will forever be secure and you will have more than you could ever hope for or imagine. Jesus says security and abundance, the fullness of life is found in none other than living on mission for God. And the great promise for us that live on mission for God is that we will forever be found in the house of the Lord. Full security and full abundance, the fullness of life. But it gets better. He goes on to say there's another promise. At the very end of verse 12, he says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He says to those that live on mission with God that are found in Jesus Christ that I will give you a new name. And why is a new name significant? Because for the ancients, a new name meant everything. It was their reputation. It was their significance. It was everything they had done in life wrapped up into one. And Jesus says the one thing, the reason... You live on mission for yourself and not for God is because you're trying to find security and abundance and fullness, which all leads to a great reputation and a great name in life. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I know you long for a new name. I know you long for a great reputation, but look no further than the kingdom of God. For those that are found in Jesus Christ, here is the good news. 
as Adam reminded us so well last week, not our reputation, but the reputation of our Savior. You have that new name. Not a name or a reputation that can be tweaked or changed or even transformed. Jesus says you have a whole new name, a whole new reputation that is greater than any name or any reputation that you could ever get this side of heaven. That is the promise for those that are found in Christ. And it would be this mission, this mission of God that leads to security and fullness and a new name that drives us and empowers us and motivates us to do things that are completely backwards and countercultural. It leads us to live on a mission for God that sometimes doesn't even make sense. To reconcile relationships that we thought were broken, to turn and pursue people that we thought were lost, to live in a brand new way. See, for us, let me say something very personal. For some of the people even in this room, the most countercultural thing that you might do in your life is even staying with your spouse. In a day and age where it says, hey, I don't find love anymore, I can't, it's, I married this person and we're not in love anymore and I'm, they're not meeting my needs and not satisfying me anymore, the most countercultural thing that you might do in your life for those that have been called to the mission of God is staying in your marriage and sticking with your spouse to say, I don't live my life for myself. My mission is not for me, but it's for the one that has redeemed me and called me out. For those that have kids and grandkids, listen to me. For those that have kids and grandkids, the most countercultural thing that you can do is not just being a great mom or dad, not just being a great leader, not being a great business person, not just being a great Dolphins fan. The greatest thing that you can do for your kids and your grandkids is show your kids and your grandkids a life that is totally transformed and captured by the mission of God. If there's nothing else your kids and your grandkids see, it is a life that is completely captured by the mission of God. The question I have for you this morning is are you part of that mission? Has your heart been captured in such a way that you say the mission of myself leads nowhere? Actually, the mission of myself leads to more burdens, leads to more obstacles. It's a nowhere street that leads to nowhere. The fullness that I thought I would get, the security that I thought I would acquire and attain just never seems to happen. But for some of you this morning, you have to reconcile this in your mind and in your heart, that to be a part of the mission of God, you first have to understand that this mission was first and foremost for you. You see, it says here in the passage that in verse 9, that I will come so that they know that I have loved you. See, to first be captured by the mission of God, your heart has to be captured by the love of God. And if you're here this morning and you don't know this love, if you haven't been captured by this love, then the same invitation that was granted to the, to the New Testament audience is the same invitation that's granted to you today, that you can be received into this family and understand that when Jesus says, I've come to seek and save the lost, he's come to seek and save you, to rescue you from a life that leads nowhere and to give you a life of hope.
Understanding that it is his life and his death and his resurrection alone and on the basis of his righteousness that you can stand before God one day and say it's because of him and him alone that I have life and have it to the full. Allow me to enter into eternal rest. Let me end with this. Recently I heard about a gentleman. He had a sister that was living in Ireland and he was living in central Florida. His name was Bob and his sister suddenly passed away. His sister that was living in Ireland passed away and after the funeral he felt ill. And he asked his daughter, he said, would you take me and drive me to the hospital? And on the way to the hospital, he turned to his daughter and he said, wouldn't she be surprised, speaking of his sister, won't she be surprised if when she walks through the gates of heaven, I walk in right behind her? Eventually, Bob arrives to the hospital and he passes away a few hours later. He was walking in behind his sister. Could anything be sweeter? Listen to me. Could anything be sweeter than to walk through the gates of heaven with the ones that we love? That's a mission. That's a mission.